We are starting the series this morning on Nehemiah, and Brad and I have been discussing of length this incredible book. There is so much in this book. There is so much that we we're looking at. What do we touch? What don't we touch? And I want to encourage you that in the next four weeks that we're going to be doing this book, go away and read it. You could read Nehemiah in in one sitting. You can read it in in chunks and pieces. You can take little bits of it and hold on to it. But over the next four weeks, I'm hoping that that guys are going to have read through it a couple of times, three or four times, read through it, looked over it, prayed about it, asked God who Nehemiah was, asked God what, what the purpose of the story is. I'm going to explain a little bit this morning and over the next uh, three weeks, we're going to ex- explain the whole book and, and touch on 1% of what's in this book. There is so much in this. There is so so many stories, so many things. I mean, I was, I was writing this this morning, um, for this morning, and I was getting stuck on one sentence that I was writing tons and tons of stuff on. And I'm thinking, Flip, we're never going to get through this book if we stay on one sentence. This is an incredible book. And we're going to touch a little bit on it, but please go and read it. If, if you have a study thing, do it alongside that, but take the time just to read Read a, a chapter a day. I think there's 13 chapters, if I remember correctly. Read, read one a day. Read two a day. By the end of the book, you'll find you want to read four a day, five a day. Just flip through it, read it, and ask God to show you. So before I turn to Nehemiah, I want to kind of set a little bit of the scene before, before we go there because it helps understand where the book starts. And it was quite interesting going back through, but... Jerusalem goes through two major major exiles. Israel is is cleaned out twice that we see in in the early um, early books of the Bible. So we see in 721 before Christ, we see Israel be taken. The ten tribes get taken by the Assyrians, and then we see it again a bit later in 586 BC. We see the rest of the two tribes of Judah, which include the tribe of Benjamin. We see them get taken out by the Babylonians. So this it's after this exile by the Babylonians that we see the book of Nehemiah. Interestingly enough, in our Bibles, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are broken up into separate books. But a lot of scholars, most scholars, argue that originally those books were written as one book. They were slammed together and that it was written by Ezra. It doesn't really change anything it's not a major deal one way or another but most scholars argue that it was Ezra that wrote the book if you go with me to 2 Chronicles 36 verse 17 21 sorry I was a little bit 36 verse 21 it's the back end of the last book of Chronicles 36 verse uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chanaleans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and, and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon. 
And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the king of Persia. Uh, sorry, establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the incredible thing about the Bible, which I find incredible, is that we see things in other books that relate to other parts of the scriptures that without looking closely, we don't actually understand what they're saying in that. So that, that part in Chronicles is actually talking about the second exile of, of Israel in Jerusalem. That's the final time that they came in and took. And they were taken in three deportations. There was three times that the Babylonians came in and actually took them. I know this is a bit of a drag, but it sets the scene and sets the story for Nehemiah to understand why it's, it was such a big deal for him to go. But the first time they came in in 606 BC, they removed the courts in Jerusalem. The second time they came in, um, which the yeah, second time they came in in 597 BC, they removed the craftsmen, the builders, the guys who could could put the city back together if it was broken. And the third time they came in, they destroyed everything. They burnt down the temples. They they laid the place in ruins in 586 BC. And that's what two chronicles is talking about. It's talking about the time that the they came in and they removed and broke the city down. Interestingly enough, we see the city be restored in three areas as well. So we see the city, which we can see in Ezra, it gets restored. It gets restored in 537 BC. They restore the social life. The, the people move back into the city in some regards. And then we see it again in five, sorry, 458 BC. They restore the religious structure. But it's the final one that we want to talk about this morning. It's in 444 BC. We see Nehemiah go back in and begin the rebuilding of the physical life of the nation. So we see, we see the city get absolutely destroyed in three sections, and then we see it get rebuilt in three sections as well. So if you, if you want to extend your reading and, and read a bit more, read Ezra as well, because you see the beginning of the, the rebuilding of the kingdom of God being rebuilt back by Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah were in the city at the same time, but it was Ezra and Zerubbabel that went in first to start to rebuild the city. Now we can turn to Nehemiah. Because now we understand that when we turn, when we start with Nehemiah, we start with a man in the courts of a Persian king. And we don't, un I didn't understand until I started to really take a look at what was going on. We don't understand why it is that he has to go back into the city and rebuild it. But he had to go back because it was torn apart and broken in such an incredible way that we're going to talk about now. So go to Nehemiah verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalek, now it happened to the, to the month of Chisilveth in the 20th year, as I was in Susia, the citadel, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews, who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
So the first thing we see in this book is we see a man, Nehemiah, who hears the tales of the city of his forefathers. And the interesting thing in this part is that Nehemiah wouldn't have been born in the city. Nehemiah was born into the exile. So he was born outside of the city of his forefathers. So when he hears the news about Jerusalem, he has no idea what it actually looks like to be back in that place. But he understood that the God he worshipped, God the Father, that was the city that he had chosen as his people. And he weeps. So the interesting thing I see in this book is that here's a man who we know virtually nothing about to begin with, but we see him absolutely broken for the call of God. We see him absolutely broken that, that the kingdom of heaven is not being forwarded at this time. For me, that makes me incredibly sad for where we stand today. Because I think if people understood that this is the place that we stand in, we are just like Nehemiah, born in exile, but being saved and brought back into the call and things of God, that our heart should break just as Nehemiah's did to see this thing come. I, I know I say this a lot and it challenges me all the time to, 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 to want to get away from this, but I can't because I... I want to see God come in such a, a, a big manner. But I look at the church and I look at people complaining about what they can and can't get in the house. And I think that's not what Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah wasn't complaining about what wasn't there. He was heartbroken because his God wasn't being praised in the city that he had chosen. That's phenomenal. Not only was he heartbroken, he removed himself from his way of life and went and fasted and prayed to God, God, what do we do here? I've just got news that your city, your chosen people are scattered and broken. What do we do? His prayer is very interesting. He prays this, O Lord, God of heaven, verse 5, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah stands on a place and he calls out the words of Moses. And interestingly enough, if you can turn your Bible, if you've got one, turn to Leviticus 26, 31 verse 33. I will make a confession here. Before I started this sermon, I haven't spent much time in Leviticus. Leviticus is such a hard book. It is a hard book to understand. But it's quite interesting when you read Nehemiah, when you read other guys say, you promised Moses. Some incredible things highlight through the book, and I'm going to show you one of them this morning. So Leviticus 26, 31 verse 33, it says, And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will, will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations 
and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. This is God talking about what happens if, if the Israelites were disobedient to his word. The incredible thing is that Nehemiah recalls this, and he looks at it, and he looks at what the news he's just been told, and he said, they've ruined our city to the point that they don't even want to take occupants in it. They don't even want to move in and take it over. Rather, they'd burn it to the ground and leave because they were so disgusted by how bad the land had come. So Nehemiah starts realizing that, that there was a promise that was made, that God said, if, if you do not listen to the things that I tell you, if you do not choose my ways, this is what's going to come of you. And I think it's interesting because when we see this through the, through the New Testament, we see that it wasn't so much that, that God was punishing them, more so that he told them what to do. He told them how to, to stay in the land and they didn't listen. See, when we, look at, when we look at sin, we see sin now, like we've spoken about, as the, the naughty things that we do or don't do. But the, the, the Israelites understood sin as their place of worship, their focus, what they were doing, who they were as a people group and what they were, were putting their faith in. But when they didn't put their faith in God, they were in sin because they were no longer acting according to the plan that he had set out. Go back a little bit in Nehemiah for me, to Nehemiah, uh, sorry, in, in, in Leviticus. Go, go back to 25, verse 25, 1 verse 5. The Lord speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai. Sorry, is everyone there? Yes, and I think it's up there as well. Brandon's doing a killer job. Leviticus 25, 1-5, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard, you shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the, the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So earlier in Leviticus, when God's explaining what they have to do and how to do it, he says to them, you must allow the land rest. Harvest for six years and on the seventh, don't touch the land. Let it rest, let it re rejuvenate and then come back the next year and you can harvest again. But the Israelites in that time failed to put their trust on God and decided, no, we're going we're gonna to harvest on the seventh year. So they continue on. For 500 years, they harvested on the seventh year. Remember the verse we read a little while back in two, before in 2 Chronicles? It says at the end of that 2 Chronicles verse, actually, let's just go back there. Go back to the end of 2 Chronicles where it talks about, where it talks about Jerusalem being Sacked and says at the end there, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay, de lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Jerusalem gets, gets leveled for 70 years because God says, I told you that if you didn't give it a rest, I was going to force the rest upon it. So he removes the Israelites out of the land for 70 years so that the land can rest. We fast forward to the end of that 70 years and we get to the story of Nehemiah. 
God calls Nehemiah at the time the land was ready to go back and rebuild right when the land was ripe, right when it had got its 70 years worth of rest. See, the interesting thing in this is that we look at Nehemiah and we're going to hear the next, the next few weeks how incredible he's able to build the wall. But the thing is, is that the moment he steps out of God's timing, it can't happen. They had tried previously to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and it failed every time. The reason it failed was because it was outside the timing of God. It was outside the promise that God had designed and the purposes that he had laid forward. So of course, no one was ever going to be able to rebuild it because the land wasn't ready. Because God had said, you give it the rest that it desires and it was owed 70 years of rest. Sometimes, so often or not, we push to say, I'm going to make this thing happen. And if God wills it, it'll happen, it'll happen, it'll happen. And we push and push and push until we're standing in a place and we're going, God, why aren't you blessing this thing? Why isn't it working? This relationship that I'm in, this job that I'm at, why isn't it working? And God's going, because I never called you there. I never said to you, go. I never said that that thing was ready for you to step into. When we take ourselves outside of the timing of God, when we remove ourselves from, from asking God, God, what do I do in this situation? We find ourselves in an awfully hard place because God never designed to put us there. He doesn't leave us in that place, but jeepers, it's harder than it was supposed to be. We could have taken a much easier route. The Israelites could have taken a much easier route. They're thinking, flip, if we had just listened and trusted God in that seventh year that he would have provided for me, we wouldn't be where we are now. The interesting thing, if we keep reading down after the prayer of Nehemiah, we see the next, the, the, the next incredible thing, which I think is, is beyond fascinating. He says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Xerxes, when wine was before him, I took... Oh, sorry. I don't know why they broke it up like this, but if you read Nehemiah 1 verse 11, at the very end of that, they leave out the first sentence, which says... Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. So we have to understand that Nehemiah was, he was a servant to the king. His job was to test the wine in case it was poison. So he would sip it before the king. If he didn't die, the king was happy and he could then have his meal. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah was so sad in that place that his heart ached for the things of God that the king saw it on his face and he risked being killed. That at any moment that that king felt like he wasn't being pleased in the presence of his servant, he would have the servant killed. So Nehemiah now enters the courts of the king and on his face and written all over his body, he aches with the things of God. Do we have that pain? Do we have that angst and desire that we would weep for this thing? God, come and build your church. Do we look at the... the the news about the way that the, the, the politics are going and the, the social structures of the world. And are we riddled with the fact of, God, I want to see your kingdom come. 
And we'll read later that, that Nehemiah actually stood in a place of celebration because he knew that God was going to bring them into the fulfillment of that. But in the very beginning, when he first hears the news, his body is broken for the things that God had. That he, so much so that he could have been killed. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And the next verse says, and then I said to the king, the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then he speaks. We've taken our communication with God to a place that is so spiritualized that we actually can't attain to it in our everyday life. What we see right here is that in that brief moment between the king asking Nehemiah a question of which he would have wanted to answer very quickly to not upset the king, he prays to God. He didn't go away and fast for 90 days and, and, and get to his knees and grovel and, and have candles and special music. He didn't do that. It says he, he instantly prayed to God. I think that would have gone something like this. Flip, Father, what do I say? When we get ourselves to a place where every single step that we take, we're going, Holy Spirit, what do I do here? What do I do? It's not a, it's not a, and I'm, please, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fast. I'm not saying that we shouldn't do any of that. That stuff is all good, but it's not the only thing. When you're in a, a business meeting at work and talking about million dollar contracts, you don't have time to press pause and, and go out the back all the time. But you do have time to do what Nehemiah said. Father, what do I do here? As the pen hovers over the paper, God, what do I do? I do this. You know, in most instances, we already know what God wants us to do when we go into a situation. We already have the Spirit saying yay or nay. When we're standing before the, the, the girl or guy we're about to go on a date with or we're about to, to enter a situation we know we should or shouldn't do, we already know the answer. But it's that last moment, Holy Spirit, convict my heart right now. Do I step forward or do I step backwards? That's the conversation we see Nehemiah have in a position where he could have been killed, but he refuses to move without the Holy Spirit say so. It's the same as Moses. I'm not going anywhere unless you move. The way we model that out, a lot of people have been saying, yes, but how do we do that if we don't hear God's voice? I don't think, this is ben, Ben's theory, I don't think Nehemiah heard a thundering voice come down to his head and say, ask him if you can leave. But his spirit was so on fire for God that it was written all over his face. His spirit was so in agony of God, I want to do what you want me to do, that it was written all over his face, that the moment he prayed to God, Holy Spirit, what do I do? Holy Spirit said, I've already given you the answer. Ask. And he asked the most ridiculous question, the most outrageous question. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Just understand this for a second. He was asking the king of Persia if he could go back to the land that the Babylonians sacked and rebuild it. He would have got to Persia based on the fact that the Babylonians tore the city apart. And he was now saying, I want to go back and rebuild the city that could one day come against you. Not only that, he made favor with the king. He must have been a decent cupbearer. 
He was never sad in the sight of the king. He pleased the king. He carried the things of the father so well that he had privilege with the king in the way that the king says to him, how long will you be gone in the queens, with the queen beside him? How long will you be gone? And when will you return? He gives him a time which we don't understand. Sorry, which we don't, we don't know how long the time is, which is quite interesting because we don't, we don't see Nehemiah go back. So he strikes up a bargain of some, some length of time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Not only does he say, hey, can I, I want to quit. I don't want to be a cupbearer anymore. I want to go back and I want to rebuild the city that the Babylonians took and burnt to the ground that actually gave you all the servants that you see in this place. Oh, and by the way, can you please provide me the tools to do it? That's what Nehemiah asked the king. This should spur us to the place where we go when God is on our side, when God is actually truly asking us to do what he's asked us to do. It doesn't matter what comes against us because God will just tweak it so that we can keep moving forward. That this thing of the song that Sean started to sing, which is quite incredible, this I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I will stand there and I will sing because I know my God is bigger than this thing. And I know that he's asked me to be in his position. Therefore, he will provide everything I need. See, it says that we need to have favor with man and with God. Nehemiah had favor with, favor with man. That's evident. Because as we'll see in, and as we go out, God had continued to build this desire in Nehemiah for the things of him to come back. But I don't want us to forget the fact that it was in God's perfect timing that this happened. That had Nehemiah gone a year earlier, the land wouldn't have had its rest and it would have failed. You see, we've got to understand the timing of God. We've got to understand, we've got to understand what it is God saying, where he's sending us and what he's asking us to do. The first question that most people were asking that, yes, but how do I know what God's asking me? It's simple. Nehemiah prayed earnestly that when he heard his city breaking, he went in day and night and earnestly prayed and fasted for his people. You see, we want this Western culture of give it to me now in a pop-up app that will allow me to just know who God is. It'll give me a reminder and I'll get to remember to know who God is today. But that's not how this thing works. It's not instant gratification. For me to know my wife's likes and dislikes, I have to spend time with her. I have to get to know who she is. I have to do a bit of trial and error from time to time. It's a relationship. It's a one-on-one -on -one building that spends time that's why when, when, when someone does pass on, it's such a grievance for us here because of that relationship that's built. Mike passing is incredibly tough because of the relationship that we had. 
And we see that in range of when, we, when, when old friends we know that pass away, friends that we haven't seen in years or that we haven't spoken to, we go, man, that's a bit sad, hey. But we, we can move on much quicker because we didn't have the relationship we have with people that are closer to us. Because that a relationship allows us to know who they are and allows us to build alongside of them. That's what we have to have with God. And the only way we get that with God is if we're diligent in how we pray and spend time with Him. That's what Nehemiah had. So when I, when I say we've got to remember the timing of God, we don't do anything without moving forward. We, sorry, we don't do anything without God asking God, can we move forward? Your idea, Mike used to always say, it's not a good idea, it needs to be a God idea. We get to that place when we spend time with the Holy Spirit and in those little moments, God, I've got three seconds to make a decision here. What do you want me to do? Your spirit is already telling you where to go. But that's what Nehemiah did. He stepped in the places that we wish. I mean, man, I don't know that I would have been able to do that. At risk of being killed, say, um, I, I want to quit and I need you to help me build the thing that you don't want me to build. Like, that's huge. Guys, that's the faith. That's faith of a mustard seed. A tiny little bit, God, you've told me to go, so I'll go. That's where the church needs to be. That's where the church stands in a place and says, hey, what are you guys doing? I don't know. We don't know yet. We'll find out tomorrow when God gives us the next little step. We'll find out tomorrow when he gives us the next little step. There's a video. Um, I can't remember which one. I think it's from um, Finger of God or, or the Lightning one. One of, the, one of those incredible documentaries um, where they show different people around the world operating the power of God. They go to a man in India, and I can't remember the man's name, but every morning, the, the incredible thing, the, the story they take on, if you haven't seen it, you're going to say, what's the name of the show? I'll tell you when, I, when it comes to my mind. But every morning, this man wakes up. God wakes him up at a, at a ridiculous hour. And, and he, he says, God gives me my marching orders for the day. And this guy is not, these are not small marching orders. Like one of the trips they go with him, he goes into um, one of the leading um, shamans, witch doctors, who has sacrificed babies and done all these crazy things. And he walks right through his village that no one else, who's especially not a Christian, has been allowed to walk through with a film crew. And he walks right up to the guy's hut and he knocks on the door. And he says, the man's very angry. He doesn't want us to be here. He communes with God every day. There's another one where he goes to this park. He sees a picture of a man. Uh, uh, he explains that a man in orange saffron, silk clothes, will know him when we see him. That's all the, the brief that they've given the camera crew. They go, to this, they go to this watering hole in India, and there's people everywhere. And out of the blue, sure as eggs, he's the only man with a white beard in orange saffron clothes. He goes over, he leads him to the Lord, and the guy is an incredible leader in the, the lead faith in India. Every day he says, God, and, and, then he, and then he comes back and they sit down, he tells a heap of stories. But every day he wakes, he says, God, what do you want me to do today? Where do you want me to be? What do you want me, how do you want me to do that? That's where we need to be aiming to get to. That's what Nehemiah was at. Father, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to talk to? And we don't have to over-spiritualize and make it harder than it is. It's a simple conversation. God, should I pray for that lady? I'm already going. Yes, you should. Fantastic. I'll pray for her. Okay. Nehemiah 2 verse 9. Okay, so 
cupbearer to the king, goes in, weeps for his city, he prays, he goes and he asks the king, can I go? The king says yes. He says, I'm going to need... I'm going to need a way to get through the people so that I don't get attacked on the way. The king gives him the, the, the letters to get through and then says, you can have all the wood you need. This is my final point. I'm going to end with this. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers to the army of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servants heard this it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of israel i'm not going to touch on that we're going to speak about that next week about who those guys were and and incredibly what that looks like for us now so i went to jerusalem and there were three days and sorry and was there three days then i arose in the night i and a few men with me and i told no one what my god had put into my heart to do for jerusalem there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. The interesting thing about this is that he tells nobody. God gives him this vision or gives him this, this it wasn't even a vision. He gives him a, a clarity to go and rebuild the walls. He doesn't tell anybody. He goes to, the, to a city which I believe he had never been to. And he goes, I need to go at night and work out how big the job is. You see, he didn't come in and throw things around and say, God's going to rebuild it. Don't worry, guys. It's all good. He had to use wisdom in the way that he came in to rebuild it. And quietly, he assessed it. And it doesn't say it there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give another one of Ben's hypothesis, but I bet you he was praying the whole time he was riding his horse around the city. I think that's pretty clear from the way that we see him pray in a conversation. He would have been praying and he would have been seeking God. How do I do this? What's that? How do I do this here? You see, sometimes we get given a vision or a dream or a call from God and we take it and we get so excited with it that we run and we just toss it everywhere. We have no, no understanding of how it's going to happen. We have no plan. And then people start to pull it apart on us and say it can't happen. That, that won't work. When Jess and I started to to see God giving us the leadership of this church, we, Flip, I didn't want to tell anybody about it because I didn't believe it myself. I was like, how are we supposed to tell anybody when I can't quite see what this looks like? There's nothing more faith-destroying than going to tell somebody what you think God's shown you and they tear it apart and say, there's no way. People have tried, Nehemiah, people have tried to build this city before. There's no way you can do it. Had he explained that to the officials, he probably wouldn't have got a lot of them to come with him. But he would have, it would have broken his faith and tore apart the ability for him to go back in and rebuild it. So quietly, he says, I'll decide with God if this can be done. He rides around the city, he assesses it, and he goes, we have a big problem. We have a big problem. 
but don't fear. God's given us the ability to fix it. See, the beautiful thing about Nehemiah is that he didn't take it upon himself to do the job. God had given him a blueprint and he said, I need you guys to come and help do what we're going to do here. And this is what he's asked us to do. But it was because he was excited and driven by faith that they go, yes, we're on board. We want to do this with you. When Samblat um, Samblat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. See, when we take something that God's shown us and we show other people, it makes absolutely no sense to them because God's only given you the understanding and the vision to see it. It's not until it actually starts to outwork where guys start going, flip, hey, God's actually in this thing. I can see how it's going gonna, it's gonna to take, take root. The wisdom of us to understand the plan when God shows us something, to pray, to start to show some people who, who can go, man, I can see this with you. I, in faith, we build together. So that when those guys slammed him and said, it's not going to happen, he doesn't lose anybody. No one says, yeah, they're right. We're not going to do this. Because Nehemiah had already walked around the city. He had already seen God's voice. He had already heard him say, Nehemiah, this is how we're going to do it. The land is ready and ripe for you to come and build. We have to, have to, have to begin to commune with God and ask what's going on. How do we do stuff? How do we move forward on something? That's why I always say to people who have come and said, we, we're, I'm thinking of, of changing churches. I'm, the, the first thing that I say is, have you gone to God with this? Not for my sake. Not because if you leave, I'm going to have one less person. I don't, that, that's not something that burdens me. But what does burden me is, are you going where God is going to prosper you in that? Are you making it easier for yourself because you're stepping in step with the kingdom? Or are you going to make it real hard for yourself? Is the fruit of God really calling your life in that direction? If it is, man, we want to help you go. We want to help you go and be a part of that. Is the land ripe for you to go and start building again? Or is it not? And you're stepping out where God doesn't want you to step. That's what we have to take from the the beginning of, of Nehemiah, that this man would come to a place where he was so pained by the things of God that he was so joyed to do what God asked him to do. That aside from him saying, I was a little bit scared. Now I was, now I was, no, sorry, now I was very much afraid, but I'm going to keep doing it because God's told me to. That's where we get to, church. That's where, that's where we get to a place where, where there is that, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but you've told me to go. This makes no sense. People are going are gonna to sneer and they're going to come against me, but, but God. But God. As we go through this, this book, I, I want us to remember that, that Nehemiah was, in most instances, really a nobody. He was a cupbearer to the king. He was nothing special. The thing that made Nehemiah so incredible that we see in this beginning stages is that he refused to go anywhere that God hadn't told him to go. He was in communion with the Father. He earnestly was praying. And he was diligent to do what God asked him. That's what I want us to take this morning. Whatever you're doing, go and pray. 
pray briefly, pray long. If it's, if it's a big decision, if it's something that God is really burning on your heart, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're looking to move to the Horn of Africa, then I would suggest a long period of prayer. Don't, give, don't toss a quick one on that. But when we get ourselves, I think Dave preached about it a few, a few months ago, when we get ourselves to the place where we ask God about everything, we become such a more powerful and freer people. Is that okay? Does everyone understand? I didn't confuse anybody. Fantastic. Let's pray. Father, God, won't you stir us this morning, Father? Won't you stir our hearts this morning, God? Stir our hearts for the things of you, Lord. Allow us to become so filled with with a desire to see your kingdom come, God, that it shows on our face, Lord. That like Nehemiah, we get to a place where we are so, so disheartened about where your church is at. We're so disheartened about where the kingdom is at that, that it completely turns that around and we see your plans and purposes, that the joy just rattles that thing, Father. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to see your plans and to outwork them, Father. Give us the guts, Father, to, to step where others won't step because you've told us to, Lord. Allow us to see change in our sphere of, of influence, Father. Have that conversation that we, we've been yearning to have but don't know how. Father, won't you give us an understanding, a clear vision of that, Lord? And Father, I pray that for every person here, Father, myself included, that you be glorified in our life, Lord that our life points to you, Jesus, that we become image bearers of you. Father, so much so that when, when we pass, people say, I saw Jesus in that person. There was something about that guy that just, just radiated love. I pray that you use us, Father. Mold us and make us, Father, into vessels that carry your incredible message, that carry your, who you are, Jesus, out into this, this world that doesn't know you, Father. Allow us to be beacons of light. We thank you, Lord. We honor you. We praise your name. And we just worship you, Jesus. Amen. I didn't do tithes and offerings yet again. Uh, tithes and offering baskets will be at the back. I'll come and we'll put them on the barrel. If you have tithes, offerings, please feel free to bring them forth. And please be praying for us for the next week as we go on this journey. We love you and we will see you next week. Come and hear the next part of the incredible story. <laughs>